This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This week and the last week I've been discussing a good deal about national icons. I was talking about the political legacy and legends of Netaji Bose. I had uh, a conversation with Rohan, my producer, on the making and uh, the subsequent evolution of the Republic Day Parade in uh, Delhi on 26th of January. While we are on the subject of national icons, I wonder if we could uh, lighten the mood a bit and return once again to one of my favorite pastimes which is to connect uh, history of food with the idea of nation um there's a general rule really that's emerging with regard to the history of food and national identities while it would seem as though um, certain dishes are associated with certain countries and certain peoples since a very long time before recorded memory and so on and so forth the reality however is that most of these associations are born generally speaking or at least pursued with a great deal of sincerity and regularity since the second half of the 20th century and this point is best made with reference to what is now um, understood all over the world as practically the national food or dish of the united kingdom in this episode i'll be drawing largely from the work of professor panikos panai who's written extensively on the history of multiculturalism in britain and mostly from his wonderful 2014 um, book on the history of fish and chips now fish and chips of course um has developed a range of identities since its uh, beginning sometime in the middle of the 19th uh, century when fried fish first appeared in popular memory or popular consciousness it was usually connected with the jewish community in britain the smell of fried fish <laughs> apparently became the smell of the inner city ghetto in which many jews found themselves living in victorian britain especially in the east end but as the 19th century moved on and fish became combined with chips the dish became associated with the working classes take for instance uh, the very common um, sentences by charles dickens there is uh, for instance this very often cited lines from um, oliver twist chapter 26 and here's what he writes near to the spot on which snow hill and holborn hill meet opens upon the right hand as you come out of the city a narrow and dismal alley leading to the saffron hill in its filthy shops are exposed for sale huge bunches of second hand silk handkerchiefs of all sizes and patterns for here reside the traders who purchase them from pickpockets 
hundreds of these handkerchiefs hang dangling from the pegs outside the windows or flaunting from the doorposts and the shelves within are piled with them. Confined as the limits of field lane um, are as its barber, the coffee shop, the beer shop and its fried fish warehouse. It is a commercial colony of itself, the emporium of petty larceny, visited at early morning and setting in of dusk. By who? Silent merchants who traffic in dark back parlors and who go as strangely as they come. Here, the clothesmen, the shoe hamper, the rag merchant display their goods as signboards to the petty thief. Here, stores of old iron and bones and heaps of mildewy fragments of woolen stuff and linen rust and rot in the grimy cellars. Grimy cellars, shady merchants, dirty warehouse. That's the surrounding in which Dickens would locate fried fish here. Certainly not healthy. Not at all. Now, take another example, uh, for instance, from a tale of uh, two cities. There's a similar association with poverty. The sentence in which the word chips comes along for the first time um, is this, and I quote, Hunger rattled its dry bones among the roasting chestnuts in the turned cylinder. Hunger was shared into atomies of every farthing porringer of husky chips of potato, fried with some reluctant drops of oil. And now Dickens writes, a narrow winding street full of offense and stench with narrow winding streets diverging and all smelling of rags and nightcaps and all visible with a brooding look upon them that looked ill. Of course, this description could appear in virtually any Dickens novel about any range of subjects. And we might claim that we are reading too much into the association of fried fish and chips with poverty. But as a matter of fact, most of, of uh, the famous histories of the dish begin with the extract from Oliver Twist, even though such histories do not stress poverty. However, newspaper and magazine articles for much of the 19th century look at similar images often in much stronger and more negative language. The themes which emerge in a range of stories include a close connection between fish and chips and the working classes and the issue of smell, stench, stink, and so on and so forth. The association of fish and chips with the working classes and poverty continued well into the 20th century. George Orwell made this link in both uh, an objective and also in a more judgmental fashion. Take this excerpt from The Road to Vegan Pier. The passage describes the economic depression and its consequences during the 1930s. And um, here's what he writes, and I quote, You can't get much meat for three pence, but you can get a lot of fish and chips. So um, there was this association of stink and poverty with fish and chips, as I said, well into the 20th century. Now, 
take for instance um, this description of uh, a neighborhood a questionable neighborhood um, in a novel in 1962 by a character who taught in a school of educationally subnormal children in the slums of a city and she describes the dwellings the houses really of the people who typically ate uh, fish and chips and i quote large buildings with perhaps 12 or 15 rooms with one family living in each room babies and small children played with potties full of urine and excreta underneath tables covered with a hodgepodge of buckets milk bottles bread and indescribable remains of food apathetic mothers leaned back in chairs or propped up doorways and here comes the food in some rooms i quote there was no furniture except a table and a couple of chairs in addition there was a sickening vaguely familiar smell which made me want to vomit at last i asked miss london about this overpowering odor which we encountered in almost every building and here's what the character replies i quote it's mainly the smell of fish and chips and urine he answered the women don't do much in the way of washing and if the children wet their pants they hang them up to dry the same thing happens with the babies nappies as for washing the floor well your guess is as good as mine as to how they are cleaned fish and chips are the main food of this community hence your smell unquote so this extract really sums up the middle class um, image of fish and chips and its association with the poor showing that this attitude persisted as late as 1962 so fish and chips was associated with poverty squalor lack of hygiene and the laboring class despite that however as the 20th century progressed fish and chips increasingly became connected with britishness now this is a development which therefore needs to be explained with care how did that come about how did the staple diet of the laboring poor over time became glorified valorized and sold across the world as the quintessential image of britishness So this really begins to happen uh, with the arrival of overtly foreign foods during the 1950s and 1960s. Um, there were the Italian, Chinese, and Indian restaurants. So there was a change in British public opinion. It increasingly became conscious of its own food, and then found that. Uh, in the stereotypes which revolve around popular discussions of food and its connections with the national identity the britons really decided to practically invent their national dish so fish and chips by the 20th century began to replace the earlier culinary symbol of britishness that was roast beef towards the end of the 20th century cookbooks 
increasingly started focusing on ethnic lines. And that process really starts in the 1950s with the arrival of TV, to which I'm going to come very soon. So the link between fish and chips and Britishness uh, began to be made particularly since the 1950s, but it has its origins as early as the 1920s and 30s. Uh, there was this, this uh, mention, for instance, in New York Times in 1928. And New York Times in 1928 describes, and I quote, England's hot dog is fish and chips. What is hot dog to the Americans, fish and chips were to be to the English. So there was a letter in um, a Daily Mail, Hull Daily Mail, a local publication, and I quote, fried fish and chips are a national institution. What would thousands of people do in Hull for support if it was not for fried fish shops? But before 1945, really, the end of the war, the Second World War, this sort of statements remained largely isolated. Change really started to pick up uh, since the 1950s. And it was a combined effort, really, of cookbook writers, the press, the print press, as well as television, and of uh, marketing professionals who uh, worked for the fish and chip trade. So, and, and newspapers too very soon jumped onto the bandwagon. One of uh, the milestones, perhaps um, a very important milestone in this process, was the publication of a book called Traditional Dishes of Britain by Philip Harbin. Now, Harbin published the book in 1953. He had become one of the first television celebrity chefs in Britain. He therefore had access to a mass audience. He was one of the first to overtly make the link between food and nationality. Take uh, the chapters of this book, Traditional Dishes of Britain. There were chapters like Cornish pastry, Blackwell pudding, Yorkshire pudding, jellied eggs, haggis, clotted cream, and fish and chips. But let's come to fish and chips. And here's what Harbin had to say. And I quote, he begins, what is the national dish of Britain? This book is full, of course, of national dishes, which are all popular favorites. But what is the national food? The timming millions of Asia subsist mainly on rice. Macaroni in its various forms is the staple diet of Italy. Germany and sausages are almost synonymous. When you think of Scotland, you think of porridge. What then is the national dish of Britain? The roast beef of old England? No, not a bit of it. The answer is fried fish and chips. He could not clearly be more direct. Now, Harbin's argument was, of course, somewhat simple, simplistic even, and he was generalizing. But it revolved around an important truth in the sense that fish and chips had become the staple of the working classes 
And that is where there, there was the similarity that is spoke about between the role of rice in Asia and the role of fish and chips in the British culture. So um, the century progressed, uh, the 20th century, its second half started moving on and there were a number of other cookbooks and publications which um, tended now to follow Harbin's position. Now, um, there was this one, for instance, um, called The Cooking of the British Isles, published in 1970. Here's what it had to say, and I quote, The Americans eat hamburgers and apple pie. The French eat all manner of things in sauces. The Germans eat sauerkraut and sausages. Such generalizations have, of course, more than a grain of truth in them. While the English always eat roast beef on Sundays, every other day of the week they eat fish and chips, unquote. So this is how the connections get built up throughout the 60s and the 70s by the 1960s cookbooks had become increasingly drawn along ethnic lines. What the Germans ate, what the French ate, what the British ate, so on and so forth. So there were volumes on Italian, Chinese and Indian food. There were books on British food in response. This is true of books by Gary Rhodes and James Martin. Now, this was called a Great British Menu in um, 2006. Now, there are, of course, some minor disputes about the origin of classic fish on chips um, and chips, which they place under whales here. But it could, of course, uh, be found in any part of Great Britain at the time. And then there came a number of fancy recipes as well. But just as cookbooks uh, began to uh, perpetuate this idea of fish and chips as a British national dish, so did the newspapers and magazine in Britain and in America. I have already referred to, to the New York Times in the late 1920s, but the trend really grew stronger in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Here are some examples. There's this article, for instance, which said that, um, and it, it was actually referring to the arrival of hamburger in England. And here's how it described the process. It wrote, and I quote, US hamburger finally arrives in the land of fish and chips. There's another article which stated, Fish and chip stalls are as much a part of the British scene as hot dog stands in the United States. The crucial ingredients are cod, fried potatoes, and the wrapping paper in which the two companion delicacies are carried away from stall to shops. There's another article um, which says, and I quote, for generations, Britons have stopped at their local chip shops at lunchtime or on their way home from work and emerged with the staple wrapped in a sheet of newspaper. They can also eat it on a plate in the shop, but most do not because they say it tastes better on newsprint. Now, there were these stereotypes. They continued late into the 20th century. 
um, and that stereotype really kept on growing. There is, for instance, this assertion, fish and chips are to the British what hamburgers and fries are to the Americans. So every American who wants to go native will try fish and chips at least once on a visit. Now, the Americans in their eyes had already associated fish and chips with going native in England. The highest point of this process probably came in uh, 2003. President George W. Bush was visiting Britain in 2003. He was accompanied by Tony Blair. He visited the Dunkow pub in Blair's constituency in Sedgefield in Durham County. And I quote, Mr. Bush, a teetotaler, opted for a non-alcoholic lager to accompany fish and chips with a northern variation, mushy peas, unquote. In this sense, both the British Prime Minister and the US President happily played their roles in an unequal partnership in which the former offered the latter the stereotypical American image of British food. So um, the British newspapers certainly did not lag behind. In 2010, both the Daily Mirror and the Daily Express celebrated the 150th anniversary of the dish. So the Daily Mirror began uh, a piece by stating, and I quote, after fueling the Industrial Revolution and sustaining morale through two world wars, Britain's favorite meal is 150 years old. The Daily Express article said, and I quote, Fish and chips is a dish more loved by this nation than any pie, pasty or maritime soldier. It is as much a part of our national fabric as Morecam and Wise and the monarchy. The takeaway that we sprinkle with vinegar is up there with a pint, a kappa and a curry. Now these pieces... Um, clearly work in a celebratory manner. Then, of course, the article in Daily Express actually based its assertion upon a number of surveys. There was uh, this initiative by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, the survey asked the public to nominate icons of Britain, a point with which I began. Fish and chips came first. Now, there was also another survey uh, which was carried out in 2004. It was sponsored by uh, Tanker Regime, which reached uh, roughly same conclusions. There were questionnaires which asked what was the most distinctive symbol of being British. And but obviously, the answers that uh, that fish and chips uh, came joint first. Roast beef, of course, um, and yaksha pudding gave it a good competition too. So it seems that um, we are what we eat. So observed um, an article in the Highbrow Times. Now, there was another survey carried out by the Intercontinental Hotels Group in roughly around 2000 or so. And in this occasion, fish and chips came first, exclusively so. The point really is this. During the second half of the 20th century in particular, 
foods have increasingly become connected with national identity. Now, just as uh, newspapers um, were writing about uh, national identity wrapped up in food, the trade, the people who sold them and the marketing um, wings of these company also participated in this process. So there was this marketing tool really of a certain uh, variety, which had to distinguish Britishness uh, from steady competition from Indian curry or Chinese food or pizzas or burgers. But um, even as early as 1952, there were quite robust campaigns. Uh, there were posters and window cards which described fish and chips as Britain's favorite food. Similarly, there was this campaign in the late 1960s, which uh, ran a series of advertisements under the heading of the truth about fried fish. And it actually featured 16 points um, detailing the virtues of the dish. And most of these points um, related to, to its being healthy. The first was this, fish and chips as a meal was Britain's first convenience food and remained at the top for over 100 years. There was another campaign in the 1970s, which used the slogan, the great British dish. And um, there's this poster of a large bosomed woman in front of a union jack carrying a plate of fish and chips the beginning of the 21st century with the use of union flag once again and stressing the nutritional benefits, there was another campaign which said, and I quote, fish and chips, the greatest of all British inventions. So clearly the people who sold the trade certainly believed its own propaganda and marketing. The trade newspapers also tried to stress the cultural significance of fish and chips. History has acted as one vehicle for this process. It, it helped these publications to use every conceivable anniversary to emphasize Britishness. This, for instance, this article in June 1965 celebrating 100 years of fish and chips and it carried the subtitle from humble origins to a national asset there was another in the 1990s which ran the following caption and i quote patriotic dish for posh and poor so um, since the 1960s, uh, newspapers also um, started interviewing British celebrities and asked um, for their opinion about fish and chips. Apparently, uh, the Beatles said, and I quote, our success depends on this handy meal, unquote. John Lennon apparently said, and I quote, we're in and out of fish and chips alone all the time, unquote. By the end of the 1990s, the trade even had its own official poet. By the turn of the century, the Arts Council Lottery Fund actually offered a grant 
to a poet who was to be the laureate writing about fish and chips. And here is the poem that he wrote. And I quote, Last night's newsprint, testing of chips, wet, tanner a bag, folded artistically to stop all that pea juice dipping onto the best hand-me-downs. Walking home after the last bus, with mates you confessed everything to, good friends together, in a meeting place, smelling of fish and chips. Let's pause here for a moment. In 1990 and later, the smell of fish actually comes to be celebrated as something positive. Please remember that in the late 19th century, it was something terribly negative. It smacked of pretty much everything that was wrong with Britishness. But by the turn of the 20th century, this poem essentially romanticizes a lost working class childhood in which the smell of fish and chips has a very strongly positive connotation. So by the end of the 20th century, fish and chips was ready to be exported. In fact, the export quite early. It started quite early, as a matter of fact. And I'll conclude with a couple of examples of precisely that nature. There's this campaign in 2008 um, where um, arrangements were made to provide all things uh, relating to making a fish and chip shop in the grounds of the British Embassy in Guatemala for the Queen's birthday party. Later, um, the British Embassy in Rome wanted to convert a function table at the grounds of Villa Wolkonski, the ambassador's residence, into a mini fish and chip shop. So by the turn of the 20th century, fish and chips came to be standing in as an essence of Britishness. If you were to experience as a foreigner a sense of how to feel British, you simply went and ate fish and chips. The story of the transformation of fish and chips into something that stank, that smacked of Jewishness, of poverty and lack of hygiene to being the essence of Britishness throughout the 20th century brings us back to the point that I had begun with. The history of food and the history of nations essentially converges when people from various nations come and meet. And the tradition of national cuisine and national food was as young or is as young as 60 or 70 years. We'll of course keep talking about more food, more nations and more icons in the forthcoming episodes of History Chatter. For today, this is Anirban signing off. Look forward to meeting you in a fresh episode of History Chatter next week. 